Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everybody. This episode of Luke's English Podcast was sponsored by Audible.com. If you would like to download a free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke, or just click one of the pictures on my website that says Audible. Okay, now let's get started with this episode of the podcast. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 293, which is in fact part six in this mini-series based around my recent trip to California. Uh, There is still a lot to talk about, and in this episode, I'll tell you about uh, our time spent in San Francisco, and that's going to include these things. So you're going to hear my interview with AJ Hogue, the well-known online English teacher. Uh, You're going to hear some more British and American English. You'll hear me talk about earthquakes. Quakes, a short biography of Robin Williams, who came from um, San Francisco. Uh, I'll tell you a little history of the peace and love movement in San Francisco and give you some more descriptions of our trip down the west coast of California and also give you some more tips about how to talk to waiters and how to deal with customer service staff. And it seems pretty obvious to me that this is probably too much for one episode, right? You know me. I tend to go on a little bit. That's the whole point. It's a podcast, but I understand that that's probably not going to be one episode. I think that there will probably be a part seven to this series. And after that, we will return to normal podcasting and normal English teaching with perhaps some more UK-oriented topics in future episodes and also more episodes featuring authentic, unscripted conversations with my friends Paul and Amber, okay? Um... So, uh, by the way, podcast people, uh, Lepsters, Plepsters, or um, uh, LEP Ninjas, or whatever you fancy calling yourselves today. By the way, this um, while I'm recording this, I am actually live streaming on Periscope again, um, and uh, the experiment continues. I'm not sure if I'm always going to be doing this, but I'm certainly doing it right now. So this is being live streamed on Periscope uh, at the same time. So there you go. Uh, so if if uh, yeah, if, if for example, I suddenly respond to something that someone asks me, that's why. Although, to be honest, my focus is on you, my listeners, and the Periscope people are just joining me as a live feed uh, video while this is going on. Okay, then. So, are you ready? You ready for part six in this Californian adventure? I hope so. I think I should start this episode with my interview with AJ Hogue, because I think it's something that you probably want to hear. Okay, right up at the beginning. So uh, this interview took place in San Francisco in the lobby of the hotel where I was staying with my wife. And um, I should say at this point, um, thank you very much to Antonio, who's one of my listeners. He's also um, 
a fan of AJ's and uh, Antonio was the one who sort of hooked us up. He's the one who, who got in touch with me and got in touch with AJ and sort of got us together. And um, then I contacted AJ and sort of, we made, made touch, got in touch with each other and then organized the interview. So thanks to Antonio, who uh, I imagine is listening to this right now. So nice one, mate. Thanks for sort of suggesting that we meet up. Okay. Um, okay. So, who is AJ Hogue? I, I, I expect most of you know. Um, I expect most of you know who he is. Um, so he is an, uh, an American-born English teacher who started his career as a social worker first. Uh, what's a social worker? Uh, what's a, what's a social worker? Basically, a social worker is someone who usually works in the community to kind of help uh, people in the community who might need help. So it could be people with sort of mental health problems, or it could be people with housing issues, whatever. Basically, sort of like you're employed by the government or the council to go around and basically help people who live in the community with various issues and problems. So he started as a social worker before then going into English language teaching. And he taught English abroad in Thailand, in Japan, in uh, Korea and other places and at home in San Francisco before becoming an independent self-employed teacher on the internet. And he has created his own online English teaching courses and has also written a book about learning English. And he sells all of those things, his English courses and his books, um, on his websites. Um, So several websites. One of them is ajhogue.com and the other one is effortlessenglishclub.com. He also has a podcast and lots of YouTube videos, so he's quite well known on the internet. In fact, um, he's also a public speaker who has been booked to do conferences, um, speeches and presentations about learning English, sometimes to thousands of people at a time. He is probably the most well-known English teacher on the internet. Yes, even more well-known than me. Uh, and he's very good at marketing himself. And I'm sure that you've come across him. I'm very impressed by what he has achieved as an independent teacher. And I was, it was really, really interesting to meet him and find out about his work. And I recorded our conversation and I'm going to play it to you right now. Um, unfortunately, I had a bit of a technical problem during my meeting with AJ. Um, I was using a new portable audio recorder and for some unknown reason, it kept turning itself off during our conversation, which was very frustrating indeed. So unfortunately, some parts of our conversation are lost forever. Um, And that explains why the conversation cuts out a couple of times, particularly at the end. You'll notice that the end, it just stops recording and there isn't a proper sort of um, conclusion at the end. Fortunately, the main part of our conversation was recorded. So let's listen to it now. I'm going to play you two things. The first part, uh, in part one, you're going to hear an introduction, uh, but then the recorder switched itself off after a couple of minutes, which is why the conversation stops abruptly. And then part two, I discovered that it had stopped, so I I started recording again. So part one and part two. Uh, Remember that um, this interview was conducted in uh, the um, this interview was conducted in the lobby of the hotel, so there is a little bit you you'll be able to hear a bit of background noise. Basically, they were having uh, wine time in the hotel lobby, which only happened at about 
uh, one hour every day at the same time every day. I didn't realise this, but we ended up doing the interview right in the middle of wine time. So you might be you might hear the sounds of American people socialising in the background, which is quite nice. It kind of gives the atmosphere of the the hotel makes it kind of authentic. Okay, are you ready? You ready to listen to my to my chat with AJ? Here's the the first recording that I did before the uh, recorder cut out, and you're going to hear it right now. Here we go. So here we are. Um, we're actually currently sitting in a, a hotel lobby, the hotel where I'm staying here in San Francisco. And you can, of course, hear the noise of a noisy hotel lobby all around us. Uh, they're currently um, serving free glasses of wine, which is something I think they do every afternoon at 5.30. So we're right in the middle of wine time here at the hotel. So that's why you can hear lots of noise. But um, that just kind of gives you a... You can probably hear lots of American English um, being spoken around us so it's it's true i actually am in america um and as you know listeners i'm currently in san francisco on my honeymoon and my wife and i have been having an amazing time uh, and it's so much fun obviously to see the country but also to be surrounded by american english which i find fascinating and i've been hoping to speak to some locals on the podcast and who better to talk to than Mr. A.J. Hogue himself, uh, because not only is he a native of the San Francisco Bay Area, I think, is that right? Originally from Georgia, actually, but uh, a transplant to San Francisco. Okay, all right. Well, he's certainly a, a resident of, of San Francisco, uh, but he, and he's also probably, the, in fact, definitely the most famous online English teacher. Yes, that's right, even more famous than Luke from Luke's English Podcast. Um, now, not that it's all about being famous or anything, no. Uh, in fact, AJ has successfully made the move from being a teacher in classrooms in the traditional sense to being an international English teaching entrepreneur who helps many people around the world to improve their English using his self-made effortless English program, which I'm sure that you've heard of. Um, as I'm here, I thought it would be a great idea to chat to AJ to find out about him, his work, his insights into the best ways to learn English, and also the, his city and anything else that comes up in our conversation. And yes, you can join us, listeners, here on the podcast. Um, I should actually say thank you to Antonio, one of the listeners. I think we both share Antonio as, a, as an audience member for our podcast and so on. So I, I think we should say thank you to Antonio for sort of suggesting that we get together to have this chat. Um, so um, we've got one microphone here, which means that uh, only one of us can speak at a time. So hopefully we will be able to manage that okay. Um, so how are you, AJ? How are you doing? Doing very well. We've got a beautiful day in San Francisco today. Sunny, very warm for San Francisco. Been out walking. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Is this normal weather for this time of year here? Uh, not really, actually. Traditionally, the summers uh, are quite foggy and chilly and windy. But uh, the last few years, it's changed, and we've been getting these warm, sunny summers. Right. Foggy and windy and chilly. Sounds like London. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, that's the traditional, normal San Francisco weather. Oh, okay. So that's where the recording cut out. That's uh, that's that's how annoying it was. But don't worry, I managed to, 
to restart. So I'm now going to play you part two. Um, so we spoke for another 20 minutes or so. And then, and then unfortunately, at the end of this interview, the recorder switched itself off again. That's why the conversation stops abruptly before I had a chance to say thanks and goodbye to AJ. But we do plan to stay in touch and we might talk again via Skype in the future. But anyway, here now is the main part of my conversation with AJ and it's going to last about 21 minutes. And so without any further ado, here we go. Here's the rest of my chat with AJ Hogue, the magnificent AJ Hogue. Here he is. Okay, that's the sound of me trying to test the microphone. Let's see. Yeah, okay. Let's, let's, let's continue to have a little chat, but we'll keep an eye on... All right, so that's that little outtake. I'm sitting at a table with AJ Hogue. Okay, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about you in the third person at this point, <laughs> which I think is appropriate because um, you're sort of something of a celebrity online these days. Um, you know, I've seen you on the internet lots of times, and here you actually are. You're actually a real person. Uh, how, uh, I want to know about your career as a teacher and have, how you started. You started in 1994. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did you first get into English language teaching? So I, I started doing it uh, basically as a way to travel, as a way to uh, be able to live abroad because I didn't have any money and I needed to make money while living abroad. Yeah. So I got a job in Korea uh, as my first job and, and then jumped back and forth between the United States and living in other countries. And basically I would come home, work as a social worker for a while. Then when I wanted to travel, I'd get a teaching job abroad and do that for a year or so back and forth for a ways. Okay. When you first started teaching in, in Korea, was it difficult? Did you find your first teaching job to be a challenge? Yeah, it was extremely difficult. I was teaching small children I had never taught before. I had no training. They basically threw me in the class with no warning and I had all these little small children looking at me. They spoke no English. So it was the trial by fire and uh, I just had to try anything that popped into my head and eventually, you know, figured out some things that worked, but uh, it was quite a tough year. How about uh, teaching adults? Because you, you, you moved on to do adults afterwards, didn't you? Was it um, a similar challenge? Did you find it to be sort of really difficult at the beginning? How, how was it teaching adults? I found, uh, I found adults to be much easier to teach because uh, I don't have... You don't have to worry about, you know, the discipline and they're not going to stand on the table and scream and they're not going to run around the room. Uh, for adults, it's kind of the opposite. You need to, I find generally, to energize them to because they're tired, they're working, they're doing other things. That Whereas with kids, I can be kind of hyper and energetic when I'm teaching and it would just make the kids go crazy. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh my God, sit down, be quiet. And yeah. It was quite stressful teaching kids. With adults, I find my style works better. Yeah, me too, because I found that I, I taught kids in Japan in the beginning of my career, and I found that something about my energy uh, in, in the classroom just made them go wild. Like I saw other teachers who everything was very calm and everything was very organized, and the kids were like perfectly well-behaved, and I thought, this looks easy. And then I went into the classroom, and, it, and somehow, they, you know, it's like dogs. They say dogs can smell fear. I don't know what it is, but kids can smell something in you, in you about your personality, and they're like, they just use it as an excuse to go completely wild. Yeah. So maybe it's something about kind of creative people or something like that, maybe. But you found adults like me 
much more suitable for your teaching. But did you, uh, how would you describe your development or what were the, some of the key things you realized about uh, helping adults to learn English? I think the key thing that was that the, the kind of traditional way of using textbooks, focusing on uh, you know, abstract grammar rules and things like that, it just wasn't helping them actually speak the language at all. Yeah. And, and I just saw so many students failing and frustrated, and I, I realized I had to find a, a better way, a more natural and intuitive way uh, to help them actually speak, to understand and speak and function with English. Yeah. And it took a while to figure that out uh, with lots of experiments, but that's how my own method evolved. Do you think that, do you think that students don't need to study grammar? Uh, so this, this is something that people get confused about <laughs> because yeah. sometimes I'm very strong and I say, don't study grammar rules. Yeah. And people think I mean you don't need grammar, which is not the same. It's just that... Uh, Grammar, I find, is best learned intuitively, indirectly, more naturally, without adding a bunch of linguistic terms and, and a lot of complex rules that no one can remember in the middle of an actual conversation anyway. Right, right. yeah, I, I agree. Um, there's something about the way in which we describe grammar that's incredibly abstract and complicated. So if you look at the back of a, uh, you know, any course book, there'll be you know, uh, grammar rules or grammar you know, guidelines or descriptions. And in order to understand those things properly, you need to already be a near native speaker of English. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got friends who, when I talk to them about grammar, have got absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So it is a huge... Um, challenge to try and leap over all of this meta language mm. that we used to talk about that, that uh, English or any other language so um, I think one of the things that you do I believe is that you kind of use stories to help people understand grammar um, can you give me an example of how you might do that sure you know uh, one way to for example teaching verb conjugations uh, especially the simple most common ones is uh, just tell a story using you know different time frame. So tell the story in the present tense, then tell it again, uh, you know, as if it happened in the past. And of course, all the verb forms will change. Yeah. And the students will learn the past tense forms of the verbs without having to remember, oh, this is, you know, this is an irregular verb, and this is a regular verb, and memorizing a bunch of conjugations. They just learn it naturally from the story, understanding, yeah. you know, that the time frame has changed. In fact, a lot of it is about context, isn't it? Because yeah. um, when you understand what message is trying to be communicated, suddenly that allows you to understand the way in which it's being done. You know, if it, that, that's what Stephen Krashen talks about. Um, and uh, I suppose that sort of supports what we do. I think we do a similar thing, to be mm -hmm. honest, AJ. I think we've kind of got a similar approach. Do you think that works when it comes... Does that feed into the work that you do online, that idea? Yeah, definitely. So in, in my courses or podcasts, whatever I do, uh, very much. I'm trying to, to find ways to help students learn in a more natural way, more intuitive way, uh, so they can actually use the language. I mean, I think that's the key thing. So they can actually function in the real world, speaking and understanding. Uh, I think too, too often students and teachers focus too much on uh, academic type of English before yeah. they can even speak and have a general conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of backwards. <laughs> um, have you ever noticed examples of uh, uh, English being taught in that traditional um, way 
uh, a way, for example, uh, let's see, how do I say this? Have you ever noticed English being taught badly? I mean, <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I think Japan is my, the classic story I tell is Japan, where I was an assistant teacher watching a Japanese English teacher. And uh, the, the teacher wrote this sentence on the board for the students. And then for one hour, uh, analyzed it and dissected it and drew diagrams. And for one hour, talk, just talked in Japanese. So I had no idea what she was saying. So it's an English class, it's a beginner's class. And I'm a native speaker, and yet I understood maybe 1% of the class because it was all done in Japanese, analyzing. The students are taking pages of notes, and I just thought this is an insane way to teach English or any language. Why do you think they do that? I don't know. I think that it's the traditional way for for whatever reason and that they don't question it. A lot of... you know, traditional teachers or schools, they just don't think about it. And uh, maybe also because I know that sometimes uh, teachers, maybe they're not confident and it's easier just to follow the textbook and uh, then they're not doing anything different. They're not risking being criticized. So there's a lot of psychology involved in in really teaching and learning a language, um, I guess. Uh, You worked as a social worker for a little while at the beginning of your career. Do you feel like... That, that what you did as a social worker feeds into what you do as an English teacher? Yeah, I think, uh, I think probably now, especially in my teaching, I feel like half of what I do is psychology, you know, helping students overcome fear and nervousness and embarrassment and worry and just become more confident and more motivated and enjoy learning in the language more. So it's lots and lots and lots of that. Uh, How do you actually do that? I mean, like, um, I always find that students always say to me I just want to be more confident uh, in English and how does one actually give someone confidence so kind of from my experience as a social worker and then later just learning about other methods of you know counseling and coaching that there are there are different techniques you can use um, I, I'll sometimes use NLP uh, which is neuro-linguistic programming, which it has some nice techniques uh, that for visualizing things in your mind or uh, you know creating uh, peak positive levels of emotion and then connecting that to English or whatever you want to you know to, to improve your performance. So there are lots of little psychological tricks and techniques you can use, and you have to practice them regularly, uh, but to build confidence and to kind of change the emotions that you connect to English. Right. Yeah. It's really fascinating, actually. I mean, I, I've looked into um, ways of remembering vocabulary, uh-huh. you know, like mnemonics. Yeah. And the, the more you learn about that, the more you realize, oh, my God, it's like so, uh, it, it's, it's so fascinating. Have you, have you looked into that, for example? Yeah, uh, you know, one thing I I love, uh, especially if I do live seminars or something, if we're teaching new phrases or vocabulary, is, uh, you know, using mnemonics and also using uh, physical actions. I find that uh, especially involving people's bodies, so we'll create gestures that are somehow linked to the meaning of a phrase, for example. And then I'll get them, you know, shouting the phrase and doing the gestures and maybe even imagining something in their mind. Mm. And, and all those things then connect the, the word and the meaning together and it, it helps them remember it for, you know, for a, a much longer time and, and to remember it faster. Right. Do you ever encounter resistance from the people you're teaching? 
the resistance tends to come more from, uh, let's say, uh, other English teachers, schools. I find this students, I guess I just attract the ones that like my way of teaching. They're very enthusiastic and have fun. It tends to be um, others in you know the school system that, that I've had problems with. <laughs> really? yeah. Okay, so there's like the classic kind of school traditional system that you have to kind of get through that if you want to do what you want to do. Mm. I suppose, and for me, that's why I love podcasting because it's just like this open space where I can define exactly how I want to do it. And that actually can be a lot more effective because it just allows your, your creativity to run wild and it allows you to experiment and discover new and more effective ways of doing things. What's your favorite thing? Because you do podcasts, you do videos, and you do uh, uh, other things. What's your favorite sort of medium at the moment at the moment i'm having fun with periscope so this is new uh, live video app uh which twitter owns now yeah. and i'm having a great time with that because because it's live and because there's a there's an a live interaction so the audience can type in comments and questions mm. so you know sometimes i just do questions i'll just take questions for 30 minutes yeah. uh Usually I do some lesson and then questions, but I know that the students seem to love it, and I love it too. That that lot, you feel like, oh wow, we're, it's it's not quite face to face classroom, but it's closer. Interesting. Um, now, uh, was it difficult for you to to make the break from you know teaching in schools and working for someone else to doing it yourself and and launching your own products and uh, you know being an entrepreneur? Was it difficult to Breakaway? I would say uh, yes and no. The, the difficult part was just in the beginning, right before I launched my website, was this sort of fears like, it's not gonna, no one's gonna buy anything, no one's gonna visit. Oh. But as soon as it uh, started and I got just one person to join, yeah. I, my whole attitude changed and I was ready to, I was just ready to do it full time. I, I think it was about six months from when I launched it to when I quit my job. Really? Yeah. Six months? Yeah. Wow, that's really promising actually. Yeah, fantastic. Do you feel uh, do you feel famous? <laughs> I don't know, not really. Sometimes it is fun where where I'm traveling around and I meet students, they'll recognize me. Uh, that's that's great actually. I love bumping into students in different countries. Uh, it's always fun to chat with them and hear their story. Yeah. You you do uh, speaking in seminars sometimes. So this is like the broad range of English teaching from one-to-one -one teaching through to classroom teaching through to, you know, speaking to people on, in your audience on your podcast and stuff and seminars where you have large audiences. What's the, what's the largest group of people you've spoken to at the same time? Uh, 3,000 in Hanoi. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three, event. I'm going back this year, yeah. What happened? What uh, was the event? It, it was just it was uh, an introduction to my method, so it's an all-day event where I basically teach people a, a different method for learning English and studying independently. And the Vietnamese students—they are fantastic. They are super energetic, very passionate, very motivated. It fits yeah. my style, yeah. so it's just like a, a an all-day English language rock concert or something. Wow, <laughs> brilliant! And that, that so you're leading uh, sessions all day. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a long day. My voice is usually dead at the end, yeah. Right, right, okay. Wow, that sounds fantastic. How do people find out about your, your work, uh, AJ? Because I, I imagine that most of my listeners are aware of you because, you know, if you search for learning English content on the internet, then 
eventually you come across something either right at the beginning of your search or later on. But uh, for those who that, for those who don't know, how do they find out about you? Uh, I was yeah, you, obviously uh, you know, just searches on Google or whatever. You know, they'll in effortless English will pop up. Uh, I've got a book now, so more and more people are finding me through the book or uh, or YouTube is a big one too. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, all right then. So here we are in San Francisco, and uh, it's a beautiful day. Normally, it's not as hot and sunny as this. Is it a good place to live, in your opinion? It is, yes. Uh, I'm, I enjoy San Francisco. It's got a, a great mix of people, very international city, and it's becoming the tech capital of maybe the world, certainly America, because uh, Silicon Valley, which is just to the south, a lot of those tech companies are moving into San Francisco. Lots of small startups popping up, uh, which I love that. There's a very entrepreneurial feel to the city. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I noticed that driving in here that there are all these big posters advertising all the tech companies and different tech-related products and things like that. It is really exciting. You know, we've here just up the road, we have Facebook, Twitter, Uber, the, the, the sort of taxi company, although they're not taxis, it's something else. Twitter, um, Periscope, which is part of Twitter. Um, all right, here's a, here's a question for you. If you could launch an app, which I'm sure you've thought about, Right, imagine that you were, I don't know if this is something that you've thought of, but um, if you could launch an app, what would the app do? If you had like, no limitations at all, what would be the ultimate English teaching app, in your opinion? Wow, that's, that is difficult. Um, I think it would involve uh, certainly the ability to connect with, with native speakers, but, um, and there are already a good number of those conversation yeah. sites. But what I find that the weak point of those uh, apps or websites is that there's no underlying method or philosophy. So you never know what you're really getting from someone. Uh, so I don't know, somehow integrating uh, uh, you know, lessons and videos and audiobooks, like great content that is understandable uh, with then live conversation partners, tutors, but again, but trained, not just any old person. Yeah. Uh, it would be a big undertaking, probably. Like the effortless English app, I suppose. Uh, it would be, but it would. Rec- I, I don't really have a desire to to be the leader of some massive company or anything. I like being independent. Yeah. Uh, so if I can do it in a way that uh, that would allow me to be you know, independent and stay small then I would do it. Yeah, okay. But at the moment, Periscope and, uh, and YouTube and so on are, are doing the job fine. Um, okay. All right. I think that that's probably all we have time for. It's, it's great. Actually, AJ, I've got one more thing I want to ask you about. And this might take probably 10 minutes or so. Um, so I've done podcasts before about American English. Here I am in the USA, surrounded by American English. I love it because I love to hear all the different colors and shades of the English language. Um, but uh, I'm curious to know what uh, Americans think of British English. I've done podcasts about the attitude that some Brits have towards American English. And in a nutshell, uh, s- some people say that uh, American English is some sort of distortion of, the Eng- of British English and that it's a negative influence on British English and that British English is under threat from the marauding influence of American pronunciation and phrasing and so on. I think most of that is just snobbishness. There may be some... Uh, arguments for some of the things that people say, but most of it seems to be snobbishness. Um, what about from the other side? What do the Americans in general think of uh, British English? 
I think most Americans find the, the British... Oops, what did I just do? ...accent to be there quite charming. Uh, there's... Uh, little feeling that you know it's like the accent from the old country and things like that so yeah. i think it's it's generally positive uh, yeah. yeah okay all right that's 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 nice to know yeah. um one thing i have noticed is that uh a lot of, okay i'm a big star wars fan uh, you too excellent good i noticed that all of the bad guys in star wars all have british accents Yes. Noticed that? I have noticed that, yes. <laughs> What's all that about? Like, uh, if you look at the Death Star, uh, all of those high-ranking officers on the Death Star, they all speak with, you know, received pronunciation. Like, it's that uh, the, the evil empire, right? So I guess the evil British empire, and like, the, now they have the evil space empire. <laughs> right, I think that's it. I think that's, I think that's what the George Lucas was thinking. It's like, we're going to make this evil empire somehow all speak with British accents. But also, a lot of the bad guys in Hollywood movies have British accents too. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> Um, okay, but it's nice to know that uh, the British accent is sort of considered to be um, sort of charming. And uh... Okay, that's where the interview cuts out. I told you that my MP3 recorder just turned itself off. That's annoying, isn't it? But um, that was pretty much it in terms of the conversation I had with AJ. And um, I hope that you agree with me that that was an interesting talk. It's really in- It was great for me to actually meet AJ face to face, because I imagine like most of you, you'd only, I'd only ever seen him on the internet and on YouTube videos and on Periscope and things like that. So, so to actually see him face to face and just sit with him and actually talk, with, talk to him was really a great experience. Um, so, um, there you go. Don't forget, you can find AJ, of course, by going to ajhogue.com or effortlessenglishclub.com. And both of those links uh, are available on the page for this episode on my website. Hello, everyone. I have just interrupted the podcast here in post-production just to let you know that um, you're going to hear some interference on the recording. So over the next couple of minutes, you'll hear some background noise. It sounds like distortion or electromagnetic noise. It's like a sort of buzzing sound in the background. Um, That's just because of some interference that happened as a result of me having my mobile phone attached to my computer and other complicated things like that. But basically, I just want to let you know that you will hear noise, but it's going to stop after about two and a half minutes. So the noise only continues for a couple of minutes. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Okay, um, so so there you are. That's my interview with AJ, and I hope to speak to him again in the future in some way, maybe on uh, Skype or something like that. Um, so we were talking about uh, British and American English there, and in this series that I'm doing uh, about my trip to California, I have been teaching you little bits of British and American English. So let's do a little bit more, shall we? Um, so I've, I believe I've so far in the series I've talked to you about. Uh, words that we associate with driving and cars and things. And I also taught you some British and American vocab that relates to food. So we are now going to move on to uh, some British and American English vocabulary that relates to clothing. Okay, Uh, so we're we're dealing with clothing mainly. Um, All right, then. So let's let's see. Um, Now, like before, we're going to play a little game. And the game is going to involve um, me explaining a word and then you trying to guess the word I'm, I'm talking about. And we'll see if that's a British word or an American word. 
Right, so you get the idea of the game, don't you? Let me explain the word, and let's see uh, which one you come up with. Now, if you're on Periscope, you can actually type the word. Let's see if you get it. Is your vocabulary American or is it British? Let's get started. So, first of all, here's the first word, and this is what um, men usually wear on their legs. That's right. This is what men wear on their legs. What's the item of clothing I'm talking? The item of clothing I'm talking about. Um, well, of course, in the UK we call these trousers, and in the United States they call them pants. Um, so British English trousers in American English pants. Um, so watch out because in British English pants are what you wear. Uh, under your trousers. So pants are your, is your underwear. Okay, so watch out for that. In the UK, we call pants, that's the underwear, and then you put your trousers on top of your pants. But in the USA, they call them pants. Okay, right. Now, what does a baby wear? What what does a baby wear? Um, um, what does a baby wear? Let's say it's usually, they're usually white, and you put them on a baby so that if the baby uh, needs to do a wee or needs to do a poo... Uh, that there isn't a horrible accident, uh, a messy disaster. Um, in the UK, we call it a nappy, um, a nappy, and then in the USA, they call it a diaper, diaper, a diaper, or uh, in the UK, a nappy. All right, so there you go. Um, nappies in the UK, diapers in the USA. Uh, next word. Uh, this is what you wear if it's a bit chilly, you're feeling a bit cold. You might put this on, and they're usually made of wool and. Um, you get them in like Gap or other shops like that. And um, so you, you might put one of these on and made of wool and it's going to keep you a bit warm. What do we call it? Uh, well, it's not, I'm not talking about a coat, but it's just one piece. Well, in the UK, we call it a jumper made of wool. And in the USA, they call it a sweater. Okay. Kind of interchangeable. Sometimes we, uh, in the UK, you might hear people say a sweater. But generally speaking, in the UK, that's a jumper. And in the United States, it's a sweater. Okay. Um, now, next one. Um, uh, women wear these usually on... Uh, it's usually women. Sometimes it's men, I expect. But most of the time, we associate this item of clothing with women. And they put them on their legs. And it kind of uh, changes... It can make the legs look a little tan or it just gives a, like a very thin layer of, of cover on the legs, and it's a very thin, stretchy material uh, that women wear on their legs. Okay, now what are these called? Any idea? Well, in the UK, we call them tights, and in the USA, they call them pantyhose. Now, right, so, um, next word. Um, this is what... Um, Hmm. If you're wearing a, a very smart suit, obviously you have the trousers, you have the jacket on the suit, you wear a tie and a shirt, but sometimes there's a third piece in the suit and it's just something that covers your body. There's no sleeves on it. You know what I mean? Um, snooker players wear them typically. So it's like a sleeveless third part of the suit and it's got a few buttons down here, same colour as the rest of the suit usually. Well, in the UK, that is a waistcoat and in the United States, they call it a vest. Okay, there you go. Waistcoat or a vest. Um, if you, um, yeah, if you're doing some sport or if you just want to look cool, then um, you might wear these on your feet. Nike, uh, Adidas, Reebok, um, you know, Puma, that kind of thing. In the UK, we call them trainers, and in the United States, they call them sneakers as well. Uh, sneakers, which is interesting because um, um, do we use them for sneaking around? You'd imagine that ninjas use them, don't they? Because they have to sneak around the place 
don't let anyone hear me because I'm a ninja. I'm going to sneak around in a pair of Adidas. Um, no, that's not the reason. I, sp- I don't know why they call them sneakers, but I suppose they've got a soft sole, which kind of allows you to uh, walk more quietly. Maybe that's why they're called sneakers, because to sneak is to walk around quietly without anyone hearing you. Admittedly, in the UK, we call them trainers. Um, and and yet, most of the time when people are wearing them, they're not training for anything, are they? Like, uh, you're wearing trainers. What are you training for? You, you, maybe I'm just training to 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 be able to drink more beer. That that seems to be what English people wear trainers for. Anyway, uh, so that's trainers in the UK and sneakers in the in the USA. Um, next, uh, again, back to um, back to clothing again. So if you if you're wearing a suit, sometimes you can wear a belt to keep your trousers up. Right, a belt. That's one option. The other option is you, you wear those elasticated things that are attached to your trousers, and they go over your shoulders and then and then down. And you can sort of like use your thumbs to stretch them out if you want to feel important. You know what I mean? What do we call those? Well, in the UK we call them braces, and in the United States they are suspenders. Yeah, suspenders. Now in the UK, suspenders we call the they're like braces, but on your legs. So it's kind of a slightly more sexy item of clothing. Uh, if you can imagine a, a, a sexy woman wearing suspenders, stockings and suspenders, that's that's what we mean by suspenders. Women wear them on their legs, but men wear braces, and women sometimes too, um, and they go over their shoulders. Those are braces, okay? Uh, let's say you've been invited to a very fancy dinner where um, you're going to uh, have champagne and it's all extremely smart. You need to wear the right clothing. For example, James Bond might wear this kind of thing. Uh, it's a certain type of, uh, uh, of, of clothing. Um, I think you know what I mean. Well, in the UK, we call it a dinner jacket. And in the United States, it's a tuxedo. But actually, to be honest, I think that in the UK we call them a, we call them tuxedos these days as well. Now I have seen, in, for some reason, in lots of countries around the world, you call them a smoking. Um, in Japan, I think they're known that's known as a smoking. But uh, no, no, sorry, that's a bit of Japanese English. We call it a, 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 um, a dinner jacket or a tuxedo. There you go. Um, so. Uh, what about uh, if you you see these in France a lot, or maybe it's a stereotype, but uh, guys seem to, French guys are, are, are sort of considered to to wear these things, um, and it's a thing that goes around your neck like this. Um, and so it's like a sweater, but instead of the collar um, finishing um, at the bottom of your neck, the collar kind of rises up and covers part of your neck. Okay, now in the UK we call that a polo neck. A polo neck sweater in the United States, it's a turtleneck. Okay, there you go. And here, here's the last in this little list of British and American words relating to clothing. And uh, this is what you wear on your feet and your legs when it's raining, or if you're a farmer and you want to go out in a, in a muddy field. Um, so uh, farmer it wants to go out in a field, or if it's raining, you put these things on and they are like uh, boots. They're made of uh, rubber and they cover your legs and your and your feet so that you don't get wet. In the UK, what do we call them? We call them wellies, that's right, uh, which is short for Wellington boots. Um, Wellington boots or wellies. And in the, the United States, they're known as uh, galoshes. 
That's right, galoshes. Okay, so there you go. There's another little uh, uh, selection of British and American English vocabulary. Now, let's go back to uh, my account of my holiday in, in California. Um, and uh, I believe it was something like August the 14th now. So let's go back to the day that we left Yosemite. If you listen to the previous episode of this podcast, uh, which was episode number 292, then you'll know that um, the last sort of place we were at was in Yosemite and we just finished uh, a rather complicated hike around the mountains. So let's go back to, to that uh, to that time. Um, so the, in fact, we're going to start talking about the day that we left Yosemite. And this is before I met AJ Hogue in San Francisco. And remember that, uh, as I said, this is after the long hike that we'd had uh, in the mountains and after my wife sprained her ankle and had to use crutches to walk down. Uh, it was a bit dramatic and all that sort of thing. And, and, uh, uh, exhausting. So in the morning, uh, my, my wife tentatively tried to walk a little bit on her ankle. And thankfully, it seemed to be okay after all of the rest because, you know, she had managed to keep her weight off her ankle during the rest of the trek with the help of the crutches. And um, also, I felt quite confident because she was going to be able to rest her ankle even more in the car. So we didn't have anything planned that was going to involve a lot of walking. So I thought, well, this is quite positive. She's going to be able to rest her ankle. Um, So we drove out of Yosemite and it felt like a bit of a pity to be leaving all of these huge rock formations like El Capitan and the Half Dome because we'd got to know all of these things quite well in just a few days that we'd been there. And it it was always exciting. It was always an exciting surprise to see these magnificent rock structures um, and mountains through the gaps in the trees because uh, they are like the big celebrities in this park and whenever you see them they dazzle you with their charisma and charm it is like that so as we were driving out of the valley we stopped a few times just to stare up at the the, the rock faces for a while particularly El Capitan which I think is one of the biggest vertical rock faces in the world um, and uh, rock climbers enjoy climbing it uh, but it can take four to five days, four to, that's not 45, no, four to five. It can take four to five days to go up the whole thing. And the climbers actually sleep on the ledges of the rock face itself. They actually sleep on these ledges on the rock face. Um, either that, or they set up beds which hang from hooks on the rock face. So can you imagine that? Imagine sleeping on a tiny little camping bed which is actually hanging from the cliff with thousands of feet of air, just thousands of feet of nothing below you. Imagine. Personally, I would never be able to sleep in those conditions, but it must be an incredibly thrilling way to enjoy the place. Um, so, um, so we're going to miss these mountains and rock formations, but it's time to drive to our next stop. And it's a place that we're looking forward to very much. It is, of course, San Francisco. Um, as I outlined in the second part of this series, when I talked about California's history, San Francisco was originally a Spanish settlement for missionaries. But then when gold was discovered at almost exactly the same time that California became part of the United States, the city grew really fast to be a gold rush town with thousands and thousands of people moving into the area, including many Americans, but also Europeans and Asians. And that multicultural mix is still evident today in the city. Um, San Francisco is also known for its earthquakes. Um, And there was a big earthquake in 1906 that destroyed large parts of the city, but the city rose again, it recovered. It rose like a phoenix from the ashes, 
In fact, the flag for San Francisco shows a picture of a rising phoenix to commemorate the city's recovery. So the phoenix is is like a sort of symbol of San Francisco. It's on the flag. Um, they have there have been a few big earthquakes in San Francisco over the years, including another one in 1989, and the city is still expecting another really big earthquake to hit at any time, which is a little bit worrying. Um, it's a bit of a worrying thought, and it's one that I suppose the residents of the city don't think about too much. Does that idea give San Francisco a kind of laid-back and open-minded atmosphere? Well, possibly. I suppose that if you know in the back of your mind that everything could be destroyed in any minute by a big earthquake, then it might it makes you a bit more philosophical, or it makes you enjoy every moment while it lasts. That feeling does pervade the place a bit, and it's got a nice sort of peaceful, meditative and bohemian atmosphere, which is very refreshing. Um, At this point, I'd just like to ask my listeners, um, if you live in a place that has lots of earthquakes, do you think that that has an effect on the mentality of the people who live in that place? I mean, I lived in, you know, I lived in Japan uh, for a couple of years, and they tend to have earthquakes and stuff. And, you know, Japan's got a a, a sort of... Obviously, it's a very busy place in Tokyo, but there's also a very serene, peaceful atmosphere in parts of of, uh, Japan as well. I wonder if having the threat of earthquakes, those big natural disasters, I wonder how that affects the mindset of people who live in those places. So if you, for example, live in a place that has earthquakes... How does that affect the mindset of the people who live there? Leave your comments on the page for this episode, um, as usual. Um, So San Francisco is also known for being the focal point of the beatnik and hippie movements of the 1960s. And Haight-Ashbury, in particular, is the district that was associated with those movements. And I'm going to speak more about that later on. So there was a long drive for us uh, to San Francisco I was driving the Chevy Camaro, which kind of made it a bit more enjoyable for us. Um, And we finally got into the Bay Area and we got our first views of San Francisco. The first view really is the Bay Bridge, which is not as famous as the um, Golden Gate Bridge. But nevertheless, it's still pretty impressive. And you get to see the whole Bay, San Francisco Bay, uh, around you. And uh, it's great. It's really fantastic because suddenly you can see the sea and, you know, you've got the sea air and you start picking up on you know, features of the, the, the city. And it's really interesting. We made our obligatory Whole Foods stop, of course. I told you about Whole Foods in the last episode. So we well, obviously we had to stop at Whole Foods to get our lunch. And then we made our way into the city and found our hotel. And we started to explore the area a little bit. Um, not walking too much, just sort of taking care of my wife's ankle just to make sure that she was all right. And we had a little look around the area where we were staying. And we were staying near a place called Polk Street, um, which was our home for the next few days. Um, I don't know if you know San Francisco, uh, but AJ Hogue used to live near Polk Street. In fact, he lived about one minute away from the hotel where I stayed. And that, in fact, is that flat that he had there, that apartment where he used to live there, was where he first started uh, Effortless English. So quite interesting that I ended up in that spot. So Polk Street is really cool. In fact, we were staying near a place called Knob Hill. Um, and in fact, our area, the the specific area where we were staying was called, was known as Tender Knob, uh, which I found particularly funny because obviously um, tender uh, means soft, doesn't it? And knob, well, uh, a knob, well, it's a little bit rude, 
But, uh, you know, a knob is, it's a sort of a colloquial term for uh, a willy or a penis. So tender knob is the area where we were living, which obviously is the, the ideal place to, to stay in San Francisco. Um, right. So being in San Francisco was, after being in, in Yosemite, was a, like being back to civilization and a really great kind of civilization because it's a really bohemian and cool atmosphere with interesting places and loads of originality and lots of little shops and cafes and bars with long lists of local beers and lots of different types of coffee. Um, and we spent place, spent some time looking for places to have dinner and breakfast the next day. And we wandered th- uh, along Polk Street a little bit and we visited a few bookshops that were still open quite late and s- some bars and cafes. Uh, we stumbled across a board games shop. There was just one shop devoted to board games, which was just fantastic. It was like being in sort of Aladdin's cave or something. Just uh, huge shelves full of board games. And, um, you know, we love board games, don't we? They're, they're fun, even though we're, you know, we're all sort of using computer games and things these days. But board, there's something just really satisfying and fun about a decent board game and getting a new board game and opening the box and exploring all of the little pieces that you get from the board game and, and looking, at the, uh, looking at the board itself and just sort of learning the rules and then starting to play with your friends. And so uh, we bought a board game and it's, uh, it's a Sherlock Holmes board game. And it's called The Master Detective Game. And I recommend it. You can get it online. Uh, The Sherlock Holmes Master Detective Board Game. And it's really, really good fun. Because um, essentially, the way that the game works is that um, the board represents different places. So it's a bit like being in a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, you've got twenty, you've got 221B Baker Street in the corner and then various other locations around the board. And the idea is that you take a card and that's got a case a criminal case on it. And you read the details of the case and then you and the other players roll the dice and, and go around and visit different places on the board. And when you visit those places, you can collect clues that relate to your case. And so at, the more clues you gather, the more information you can get about your particular case. There's a case book, you see. And so you visit the, the, uh, you know, a spot and you find the particular clue in the case book for that spot. And then eventually you kind of piece together the story and you can work out the solution to the mystery. And when you think you've worked it out, you have to get yourself back to, to, to 221B Baker Street and announce, announce your solution in the same way that Sherlock Holmes would do. And if you're correct, then you win the game. So it's a lot of fun. So we settled into the area really nicely. We had some really delicious peer, uh, beer. We had, we had delicious beer and pizza. Uh, which is like peer. Is that a new word? Maybe. Anyway, uh, next day, we explored a bit more. We we visited places like Russian Hill, Pacific Heights. You know those amazingly hilly streets in San Francisco? The city is famous for these very, very steep hills. And the you know all the buildings are built up on these steep slopes, and uh, they're really really steep in some cases. Um, so they're interesting to explore. And when you go up the hills, you get really fantastic views. You can look all the way down the streets, all the way out to the to, and you can see the the sea in the distance. Um, it's just really attractive, and all of the houses are really pretty and, and nice. Just a, a fantastic place to explore. And it's not too big. It's not like uh, Los Angeles, which is impossible to explore on foot you have to get in the car and you get stuck in traffic jams san francisco is is 
negotiable on foot. So you can spend lots of time walking around. It's really great. It's good exercise too. You're going to burn off a lot of that fat from eating pizza and drinking beer. So it was really a uh, really great place to explore. Uh, we had breakfast in a place called Toast, which seemed to me like one the most American breakfast place ever. You know those American diners? Um, so it was like that. And I ordered a big American breakfast plate loaded with pancakes and fruit and with butter and maple syrup again. And it was absolutely delicious. But admittedly, later on that day, I did feel like my blood sugar levels were in a complete mess. So I decided that I shouldn't really eat more food like that in the future. And I decided to try to be more healthy. Again, I'm reminded of films Uh, which are set in San Francisco. And the two of the main films that came to mind while I was walking around the city were Dirty Harry, the Clint Eastwood film, which is set there, and Bullet, the Steve McQueen film. And um, I recommend both of those films if you want to get a sense of what San Francisco is like. The films are set in the past. Bullet was filmed in, I think, 1966, and Dirty Harry, 1971. Um, So it's not quite the same as it used to be. But still, the main... Aspects of the city are still there, the hills, the, 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 you know, the, the quality of the light and, and all that kind of thing. Um, we walked around, as I said, Russian Hill, and there are these beautiful multicolored houses and quirky doorways and things. It's actually a very expensive neighborhood, very desirable place to live. Um, and while we were walking around, we came across a tribute to Robin Williams outside a house where they had filmed uh, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire is one of Robin Williams' uh, famous um, uh, famous movies. And this is in the area called Russian Hill. I imagine they called it Russian Hill because I, I expect um, a lot of Russian people populated that part of the city years ago. I mean, as I said, it was a... a, um, a uh, it was a, a very multicultural place and lots of people had come there from different parts of the world. So maybe that was the area where the, the Russians had uh, had uh, sort of set up their, their first community. Um, didn't seem to be particularly Russian when I was there. It just seemed to be like really typically San Franciscan, if that's an adjective. Um, anyway, so we came across this little tribute to Robin Williams outside the house where they'd filmed this movie. And uh, we realised that it was exactly one year since he had died. And so, uh, in fact, the day before was the anniversary of his death. And there was like, you know, uh, we checked it out on the internet and we saw pictures and there had been lots and lots of flowers arranged there. But what was left when we were there the day after was um, this little, this beautiful little um, shrine to Robin Williams. And it was basically like lots of stones on the ground with messages written on the paving stones and so on. And it was just uh, very moving just to stand there and read all the messages and just to sort of soak up the atmosphere of the place and just to kind of think about Robin Williams for a while. And um, so I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about Robin Williams. Um, Like who was Robin Williams and what happened to him? Um, Now, I'm sure that you know Robin Williams because he's very famous and obviously he famously died about a year ago. But I'd like to just give you a little brief history of the life and death of this great comedian. So uh, Robin Williams was a trained actor and he trained at a very, very well-respected acting school called uh, Juilliard in New York. And um, so he's actually got really great 
background in acting and he he had a particular gift for improvisational comedy um and he became famous first of all on television in a show called mork and mindy and mork and mindy was a really cute really fun show they used to show it on british tv in the 90s um and uh, it's a really nice funny and and adorable show and in the in the show uh, robin williams plays a character called mork and mork is basically an alien from a planet called Orson, not awesome, the adjective, not awesome, but Orson. So O-R-S-O-N. So Mork is an alien from Orson. He looks like a normal person. I mean, he looked like Robin Williams. And uh, he'd come down to Earth to try and investigate and to report back to, to Orson to see what he what Earth is like. And he ends up being taken in by a really lovely uh, family, uh, a girl called Mindy, and so Mork lives in the house with Mindy and they have a sort of platonic relationship. Um, and uh, Mork is a sort of fish out of water, as it were, and he's sort of discovering normal life in, um, in, in California. And uh, Robin Williams, apparently, while he was filming it, improvised most of his dialogue. And that was why it was so funny. It was just basically a, a vehicle for Robin Williams's improvisational, chaotic comedy. And so Mork and Mindy was really what established him as a star. But he also did stand-up comedy. Um, and um, he was a big success at that as well. Um, he did have big problems with alcohol and substance addictions, particularly cocaine. So um, he, he had sort of a, a big cocaine habit um, but he did manage to quit. So he kind of got himself together when his first child was born and he managed to, to uh, quit alcohol and drugs and from then on basically lived as a recovering alcoholic. He went on to do some very popular films uh, in both comic and straight roles and uh, he won an Oscar for his role as a psychiatrist in Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's film Good Will Hunting. Um, and apparently... In his personal life, he was a very sweet, very generous and warm guy, uh, but he was affected by bouts of depression, which is sad. Um, as a performer, I find him incredibly versatile and animated. His comedy seems almost to be compulsive in its nature. He, he was a whirlwind when in front of a, a live audience, full of impressions, different voices and many bizarre tangents, which are often delivered... Um, in the form of dialogues between different characters, all of them played by himself, um, and all of it done at breakneck speed. Um, just incredibly entertaining. Um, in interviews, he seemed to occupy sort of two modes. Either um, um, either he was the, the extrovert comedian, or he could be the sweet and sincere and slightly shy actor. Um, so he seemed a bit bipolar in some ways, and I guess part of his talent was that wildly free sense of instant creativity. But I think that may have also been quite difficult for him to deal with when he was on his own. He fell off the wagon, which means that he, he started drinking alcohol again, uh, I think for a brief period in 2006 while he was filming a movie in Alaska, which is kind of understandable that he turned uh, back to alcohol again, considering the circumstances. I mean, he was in Alaska, you know. Uh, I'm just kidding, of course. I'm sure Alaska's uh, not that bleak or anything. But um, anyway, he went into rehab. And I think that the return to alcohol was actually a symptom of uh, a difficult time in his life. He later had heart surgery, which I think involved part of his heart being replaced. And apparently this affected him quite badly as his physical and mental condition seemed to get worse. 
after that operation. And apparently, uh, from that time forwards, he suffered from depression, anxiety, uh, and paranoia. Um, and he was unfortunately wrongly diagnosed with Parkinson's at that time, and then given medication and treatment that didn't help the real condition that he was experienced experiencing, which was in fact called Louis body dementia, which is a degenerative condition, meaning a condition that gets worse over time, in which the nerve cells in the brain are blocked by clumps of protein that interfere with, with the brain's function. Okay, um, now that may be a bit complicated, but basically the Parkinson's medication which was wrongly given to him, made this condition called Louis body dementia worse and may have, um, may have exacerbated his, uh, his low state of mind, which ultimately pushed him to suicide. And he killed himself almost exactly a year ago to the day that we found ourselves at this shrine to his memory on this San Francisco street. And at the time uh, that we were there, I couldn't help feeling a bit sad about this because I really enjoyed uh, Robin Williams's comedy and I've Obviously, it's a pity that he had to, to go. Um, but also, it's just such a pity that he had to go through such misery and that, in fact, anyone has to go through any kind of misery caused by physical and mental conditions. And I personally hope that with more research and the right kinds of treatment, this sort of thing can be prevented in the future. But anyway, I just wanted to mention Robin Williams there as a kind of tribute. Um, Okay, I think actually that this may be the right moment to end this episode of the podcast. But, well, okay, there's just a couple of other little things that I could say before I end this. Um, So, first of all, uh, that evening we went for dinner in a Korean barbecue restaurant. And wow, now I'd had Korean barbecue in Japan before and I absolutely loved it. And and I'd, I'd never really had the chance to get decent Korean barbecue since then. But in San Francisco, there's a very large sort of um, Asian community and that includes Japanese and Korean restaurants. And uh, while we were walking around the streets near the Japan Centre, uh, I discovered lots of Korean restaurants. And my wife had never had Korean barbecue before. So I said to her, look, we've got to have some of this Korean barbecue because it is absolutely amazing. You've got to trust me, it's delicious. So I don't know if you've ever had Korean barbecue listening to this, but it is just wonderful. And if there is a recommend, if there's a good Korean barbecue restaurant in your area, then I suggest that you go and, and, and check it out. Um, and uh, so we went along to the restaurants at about, what, nine o'clock that evening, and it was absolutely packed completely packed. There was a big queue of people outside and it basically suggested to me, right, this must be a really good place. So I went in, we ended up having to wait. And this is the longest I've ever waited for a restaurant. We waited for about an hour and a half. And, uh, the guy in the restaurant was like really great. And he got, you know, he was like dealing with this huge crowd of people. Most of the people there were Korean, uh, which again was a good sign for me because it, it probably meant that it was a decent restaurant if all the Korean people wanted to go there too. So huge crowds of Korean people and the guy inside was brilliant because he kept a big list and uh, he was like writing names off on and removing them from the list. And he took my phone number and you know he remembered me and stuff. And after about an hour and a half of waiting, we basically camped out in a cafe, played cards until it was time. We were absolutely starving. Um, we got into the restaurant and if you imagine the scene. It's like a really basic place, not particularly beautifully um, 
designed or anything, just really basic. But the smell of the barbecue, oh my God, just incredible smell. Loads of smoke coming out of barbecues on all the tables and loads of loads of Korean and American people in there. Lots of very loud conversation going on. Everyone was like quite drunk and having a really good time feasting on delicious um, uh, barbecue food. And there were video screens with K-pop videos, Korean pop videos on the screens, uh, hilarious and brilliant uh, and really funny uh, K-pop videos playing on all the screens. Um, so that was just a really entertaining time. We finally got our table, we sat down, and basically a Korean barbecue is that they have a circular barbecue which they place in the middle of the table there's like a hole in the table and a guy comes in and he puts the barbecue there and then there you are served these platters of different types of meat most most of it's beef and the beef is marinated in something called bulgogi i don't know if my pronunciation is very good but bulgogi and it's a sort of combination of uh, soy sauce and i think probably garlic and maybe a bit of chilli and some other things. I don't know all of the ingredients of it, but this delicious marinade. And you basically lay all of the bits of beef, this really tender, thin slices of beef on your barbecue. And you sit there just cooking the beef and it sizzles away and the juices, you know, come out and uh, you can eat it quite, you know, fresh from the barbecue. Incredibly delicious. I mean, even talking about it now, it just makes me want to eat some. And it's, you know, they give you plates of uh, kimchi, which is a sort of pickled and spiced uh, vegetable. Uh, I'm not sure of what all of it actually is, but it was really good. Really spicy kimchi and other vegetables and rice. And, uh, and of course, you know, a big bottle of um, height, which I think is Korean beer, cold beer. Um, just... I can't really put it into words. It was so delicious. So if you have a decent or good Korean barbecue place near you, go there now, okay? Queue up and then enjoy eating some really, really uh, tender, mouth-watering bulgogi uh, beef, okay? Um, Right. I think that's it. I think that's all I'm going to do for this episode of the podcast, Um, okay? Okay, then. So I'd just like to remind you that um, I have been live streaming this podcast recording on uh, Periscope. And uh, um, if you want to check out more of those sorts of things in the future, for example, if you want to attend one of the live streams on Periscope, then you just need to download the application. It's free to download. Just search for Periscope in either the App Store or the Google Play Store, or whatever it's called, you can find it. And um, you'll be able to find me on Periscope by searching for my Twitter ID, which is at English Podcast, or just go on to uh, Periscope and search for Luke Thompson, and you should be able to find me. Um, and then you follow me on, on Periscope. And if you follow me on Twitter as well, um, you will get a tweet when I'm going to start doing a Periscope. So that's a way of uh, of, of making sure that you don't miss it in the future. Um, but um, as usual, what I'm going to do, what I intend to do is save this Periscope video on my phone and then upload it onto YouTube. And you should then be able to watch the video on the page for this episode of the podcast. So you'll actually be able to see it. And there are periods where, for example, 
Um, I paused the podcast recording and I talked to the Periscope people. So that's extra content. So you can, you can get extra video content for this episode if you go to um, the page for this episode on my website. So teacherluke.co.uk and find episode 293. And then you'll be able to look at the YouTube video of this. Okay. All right, then. Um, so, yes, as I thought, I didn't get through everything in this episode. So there will be a part seven uh, to this in which I'm going to talk about earthquakes and hippies in San Francisco and the music scene and some experiences I had with um, members of staff uh, and waiters and things. And so I'll wrap this up in episode seven. But um, thanks very much for listening to another episode of Luke's English Podcast. Um, And I will speak to you again very, very soon. I hope that you're keeping up with all of these episodes. Thanks to the people who've been joining me on Periscope. Okay. All right then. So time to say goodbye. So I'm going to do that right now. Here it is. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks again for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.